The following program is sponsored by Evangelical Life Ministries. Welcome to the Liberty Alert with Gregory Sells. Sponsored by our friends at the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty here in Washington, D.C. A program that cuts through the chaos and confusion in the culture today by talking to kingdom citizenship, bold biblical principles for a robust public Christian life. And now your host, Dr. Gregory Seltz. Good day, good day, Washington, D.C. and friends of the program all around the country. I'm Gregory Seltz. Welcome to the Liberty Alert, where every week we try to cut through the noise and take on the issues, especially the public issues that matter to people of faith. Today we're talking about the Supreme Court. With the retirement of Stephen Breyer, this is now back in the news, and we're going to be talking about uh, his replacement potentially. But to do that, we are privileged to have the expert on these kinds of things in the field, uh, talking about Supreme Court stuff, nomination process, Kerry Severino, who's the head of the Judicial Crisis Network, but also uh, best-selling author of a book that I think everyone should read, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Hearings. Uh, Carrie, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks. It's so great to be here. And and Tim Gagline, VP of, of External and Government Relations for Focus on the Family. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right, Carrie, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you have seen this, this process, this nomination process from the inside many, many times. Um, my struggle, and I think maybe the struggle with a lot of our listeners, is anytime we talk about the Supreme Court nomination process, it gets the narrative is usually liberal versus conservative. And it's not what I think it should be a constitutional judge versus an activist judge. I, I think Dred Scott was an activist ruling. I think Roe v. Wade was an activist ruling. Am I missing something? How come we can't seem to get a hold of the narrative, do you think? Well, you know, I think the good news is, as you as we can see by the current makeup in the court, there actually has been a lot of success in the conservative movement in terms of understanding that narrative. When you think back, you know, now many decades, but some of the worst chief justices in the history of our country, like Earl Warren, were nominated by Republican politicians. Right. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even, you know, Blackman, who wrote Roe v. Wade, right? They weren't even beginning to think about looking at the kinds of things they should be looking in judges. It was seen as a political shit that they were trading for something else. Or, you know, just not, not the, this is a historic generational impact they're going to have on the Constitution. That changed and really started to change with Ronald Reagan. And now I feel like with the growth of the Federal Society, which has trained a whole new generation and now multiple generations of lawyers in this understanding of the Constitution, how we read it in a faithful manner, and then really in messaging that and explaining that to the American people, I think it, most Americans actually do want to see judges wow. who are going to be faithful to the Constitution and the rule of law. The, the tragedy here is that only one of our political parties recognizes that, even though I really think a lot of Democrats out there would agree that's what we want. When you hear Democrat politicians talk about it, they talk about here's this wish list of you know, rulings we want to uh, get a certain result. In. And to some extent, you know, conservative politicians can fall into that trap as well as seeing the 
the justices of the Supreme Court is kind of nine fairy godmothers who are going to give me what I want. Right. We would all like, you know, we'd all like to see the policies we think are going to be good for America enacted. But we have to remember that has to happen through a legitimate process. And in the case of, you know, we have a constitution that says that laws are passed by the elected representatives of the American people. That's Congress signed by the president. And the, the justices of the Supreme Court are there just to make sure those laws are faithfully interpreted and that the constitution itself is faithfully interpreted. So we need justices who are going to be vigorous in defending the rights that are in the Constitution, but of course, not inventing rights that are not in the Constitution, like we saw with the Roe v. Wade decision. And like, unfortunately, there is a temptation of many justices to do to say, hey, this thing, I know this thing is so good. And, you know, sometimes we disagree about which things are good, but okay, apart from even that, they want to do something they think is good, but they say, well, the Constitution I'll just I'm just going to read this into it. Basically, I'm going to make it part of American law rather than doing it the legitimate way, which is let's uh, take that to the American people. And as a judge, on the flip side, your job is to enforce those laws, even when you think they're really poorly written or poorly, uh, you know, bad policy in those laws. They have to make sure they recognize the the, the role to which they took an oath is to uphold those laws uh, as they're they're passed. And then hopefully, you know, those of us who are out there advocating in the political sphere can try to get politicians who will pass laws that have right. the better policies. But it's the judges need to be very careful to keep to their constitutional role and ultimately. That is what's going to ensure a country that's grounded on freedom and that's grounded on democracy like ours is. Yeah. You know, Tim, when you think about this, we've talked about this before, too, that it seems like a lot of these issues, everyone wants them to be federalized. Everyone wants them to, you know, they want one thing coming out of D.C. that's going to solve all these problems. And maybe that's the pressure on these judges that maybe if we just leave nine people to figure it out, they'll come up with some solution. But that's not their role. Right. And and we've got to teach people that it's it's our responsibility to get involved in these issues. Uh, yes, I totally agree. And I must say, every time I'm in the presence of Perry Severino, I kind of scratch my head and wonder why she's not one of the nine. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> she, 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 she's so extraordinary. And may I say to the second point that she raised, uh, Greg and, and Carrie, we're going to test uh, this proposition pretty quickly. So I would say uh, both Greg and Carrie that this is going to be a very important, fascinating process to watch and applying the rubric that Carrie talks about, the largest question is, you know, will a potential nominee really understand not what they perceive to be their role, but what their role actually is? And, uh, and as Carrie said so eloquently, it is not to assign the laws or make the laws. Uh, it's something quite different. And I think that we all agree as constitutionalists, this is the largest historical question we're facing in this nomination. Well, let's just jump back to you, Carrie. Then what are the dynamics of this process? Because isn't it the president's uh, job and opportunity to just go ahead and nominate who he wishes? And how how come the Senate ha- taken such a, um, a a more powerful role in this? Because I remember all the way back to, to Judge Bork. I mean, that's where I go back to. And then I also think about Clarence Thomas. What happened to Clarence Thomas? You know, no one seems to talk about uh, representation when they talk about him. You know, I go back to those processes and I thought, how, how these guys were actually now determining who these these people were to be. And I just didn't understand their criteria. So take us inside that process a little bit more uh, so that our people can understand. Yeah. So the idea, you know, originally behind having the Senate confirm a nominee that the president put picked is to kind of give them some sort of uh, accountability, make sure the president's not just, you know, nominating nepotistic kind of nominations where my cousin will go on the Supreme Court and then, you know, picking people just for himself. That means that the, that the Senate has a check 
on the president. That's a lot of authority to pick the nominee, but sure. it still has to be someone the Senate can make sure is really well qualified and well suited for the position. For a lot of American history, not all of it, but most of it coming up until the time you're talking about with Bork, it was a process that the Senate was um, largely fairly deferential to the president. So, uh, you know, there were definitely contentious nominations in there, but most of the time they were not as contentious. And particularly when you got below the Supreme Court level. But, the, you know, if there was if there was controversy come out at the Supreme Court level, but most people did get confirmed nonetheless, with rare exceptions. Once you get to the Bork era, and this is where Reagan really started turning things around. Obviously, before that, he had nominated Antonin Scalia, who was an incredibly strong conservative. Um, but it was with Bork that we saw things change particularly. And the big shift happened because between Scalia and Bork, the Senate switched hands. It went from Republican-controlled Senate to a Democrat-controlled Senate. And for the first time, really, the Democrats decided to say, hey, wait a minute, we don't have to confirm the president's nominee. There's there's nothing. We, we could actually stop this nominee because now we have majority control in the Senate. And guess who? was leading the Senate Judiciary Committee, helping lead this charge against Robert Bork, creating oh. the first, you know, huge catastrophic nomination failure. It was a, you know, there were there were ads being run for hundreds of thousands of dollars. People were shocked that this this happened. There's a verb borking someone is is to have this sort of um, underhanded uh, personal campaign against them. Well, guess who? It was Joe Biden. Joe right. Biden. Joe Biden was head of the Judiciary Committee when that all happened. Um, and that really marked a turning point in American politics. Now, for a long time, particularly the Republicans, kept on trying to go back and go, wow, let's not go down that road again. Let's keep on trying to be as as, as even-handed and as, as easygoing as we can on the, on the Democrats because we don't want to go down this road. What we've learned, unfortunately, is that there's no un, you know, unringing that bell. There is right. no way to go back to the old system. And we learned it in spades with Clarence Thomas's nomination. Exactly. Guess who was chairing the Judiciary Committee during Clarence Thomas's confirmation? <laughs> Joe Biden. Biden, the same guy who's <laughs> I know it's like he keeps coming back. Right. <laughs> it's the same guy who's going to be asking all of us to be, you know, nice and, and you yes. know, calm. And of course, his nominees are all going to be wonderful. And why would you exert serious scrutiny on his nominees? Well, let me tell you, sir, the kind of underhanded smear campaigns that you ran against um, Republican nominees <laughs> and Absolutely. that you, the, the ringleader of the judicial nomination circus is now the one appointing this judge. It's now, amazing. I am not advocating we ever should go down that road. We should we we have to maintain the, the the high ground here in terms of being we're not we should never attack a nominee based on his or her, you know, a, a personal smear campaign kind of things. However, I do think we always need to be recognizing, given the importance of this position, that we do need to show real scrutiny of a nominee's beliefs and judicial philosophy. That always should be fair game. And you can be you can have hardball questions that are still kind and respectful uh, of the human being on the other side of the table. And I think that's what I hope the the Senate um, engages in in this process, because I'm really concerned about a, a, a party that has gone really all in on judicial activism in the form of, as Justice Breyer really used to eloquently argue for, this living constitution, the idea that the constitution evolves and that the judges, that nine unelected men and women on this court get to be the sort of Delphic oracle to tell us what the Constitution says today, when right. we as the American people should be the ones who who uh, we're the ones who ratified the Constitution originally and under the proper amendment process, we're the ones who get to amend it, not unelected 
judges and, and even Biden himself said recently, I want to nominate someone who is going to enforce the unenumerated rights in the Constitution. So remember, the Constitution enumerates a lot of rights. We have the Bill of Rights that says what our rights are. What are the unenumerated rights? Those are the ones that literally are not in the Constitution. So this is an important debate that this is an opportunity for our country to have. Not everyone gets involved in the sort of lower court nominations, but this is a chance to look front and center and say, hey, do you want judges who are just pulling out of the ether what they think our rights should be? Or do you want judges who recognize that they take an oath to uphold the Constitution and the law of the country? And the Constitution doesn't just mean a blank slate that you can import whatever your beliefs are into. There's actual words. There's a text. There's a document. It's there. You know. Yes. So um, anyway, that's that's what I think this is going to be a chance to discuss. And I hope that we keep the we keep the idea of not just nominating as a as a rubber stamp every judge, because I think that was probably the wrong approach, too. But we have to also do it in a in a civil way where we can have that debate um, in a proper fashion. Well, you know, I, I, I pick up on that really quickly, Greg, because I think it's such a uh, an eloquent point. Uh, you know, God rest her memory. And I really do mean this. But this is one of the ironies of the late Justice Ginsburg. She was on the court for a very long time. She lived to be quite old, but she never really understood her constitutional role. Uh, it was not it was not to make law. Uh, it was not to be clever. It was not to seek, uh, you know, the, the the front edge of the living constitution, as Carrie has said. To, and to the other point that she was making, and Greg, the, the, the embedded in the question you were asking, is another really remarkable book, which I strongly recommend, called Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution right. by Iron Magnet. I, I Excellent think book. Perhaps, yes, I think it's the best, and it's small. I mean, it's, it's relatively short, but it packs a punch. And it goes directly to the to the point that you were asking about and that Kerry was making so well. Uh, what, what is the lost constitution? The lost constitution uh, is a relatively short document that is written with unflinching clarity and which is really easy to understand. The words have a fixed meaning. It's timeless. Well, and I think, again, people need to understand. That's why I said the narrative. If we keep changing the process, then we need to understand the underlying narrative that's process that's proper. And then the narrative is that this is to limit government so that you can have individual freedom and you can actually make your own way. And to give all this power over to nine justices is the exact opposite of the American experiment. I mean, we've got an amendment process. If you want to amend the Constitution, there is a process for that. You know, so again, I, I don't understand why people, you know, even when we vote, I was uh, I was very frustrated. Uh, and this maybe goes to the heart of the matter. I'm very frustrated at the at the basic level where I look for a judge and it doesn't give me any information about his politics, nothing about his stance on issues, nothing about his judicial philosophy. And yet I'm supposed to just say he's competent. He's not competent. Put him on the bench, you know, in our local area. Well, if they're going to become activists, I want to know about that information. And so, again, you talked about how the process is changing, but actually we're still using the old ways at the levels where we have some control. Carrie, I mean, so, again, uh, help us out. I mean, how are we supposed to fight back on some of this stuff? Yeah, it it, may, it does make it really difficult. And, and Justice Scalia talked about how the when you have an approach to the court where the judge gets to kind of add content to the law when it's not just the legislature, then suddenly it turns the judges into much more political actor. So then, then he said, you shouldn't have to in a judicial nomination process. No. Well, where do you stand on this issue? Where do you stand on this issue? Do you personally like this or that? And no, I, I shouldn't have to know those things. Right. But if the judge is going to be a politician, suddenly that does become relevant. And then suddenly 
I do have to know, all right, what is your stance on life issues? What's your stance on guns? What's your stance right. on limited government? What's your stance? Yeah. So all of those things shouldn't be our focus. Um, and, and as much as people get frustrated by the um, having parties involved in judicial elections where, you know, different states where sometimes judges are elected there, that actually can provide a helpful proxy, at least for people who are trying to figure out, okay, what is this judge's approach? Because thankfully, at least we have one party that has committed itself to a a vision of judging that would say, let's stick with the the written text of the constitution, the written law. And I would hope, again, I, I think this is something that should be appealing to people on both sides, both sides of the aisle. So this is something that may, might be an opportunity to talk with your friends who are on the other side of the aisle and say, hey, we might not agree what the best policies are to solve this problem or that problem, but at least we should agree that that is something for the American people and not for the judges mm-hmm. to then do an end run around the democratic process. Absolutely. And and before I know you have to run, uh, Tim, um, just you were actually knee deep in this because you knew Kavanaugh really well. Uh, do you anticipate that kind of process with this nominee where I mean, that was that was wild. I mean, that was a wild process. I was there, too. I was seeing the protests, you know, the orchestrated protests on the on the hill and these kind of things. And I thought, have we have we sunk to this where an, a really good guy you know, is going to be smeared like this? Is this the way it's going to be? And and all of us would probably say, I don't think this is going to happen with uh, Biden's nominees. And and I is doesn't that say something about us as a people? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh is a person of impeccable character and integrity. Uh, he is a, a genuinely gifted uh, jurist. Uh, And for anyone who paid attention to the content and the substance uh, of those hearings, they know that, uh, you know, that that the American people have a a remarkable justice in in Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, As Kerry said, and as you intimated a moment ago, uh, arising like a phoenix, you know, from the from the Bork years and and in many ways carried over into the into the Thomas, uh, you know, hearings. Uh, you know, this is really a nadir, uh, the, the, the lowest uh, possible way uh, that we should ever uh, consider uh, any potential nominee. And I feel very confident, genuinely confident, uh, that the members of the, of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, you know, uh, the ranking member, Mr. Grassley and so many others, I think uh, regardless of how they may disagree on uh, judicial philosophy or other matters that, that, that may come out, I think a, a sense of magnanimity and civility uh, will uh, will prevail, and I think that you know it's always perfectly acceptable to criticize the ideas, uh, even if you're not criticizing uh, the person. And I think that this was animated so beautifully in the friendship for years between uh, the late justices Ginsburg and Scalia. And in fact, Justice Gins, uh, Ginsburg said this in her uh, incredibly eloquent and tender uh, eulogy of her friend, Justice Scalia, where he, she said in part that, there, that the elasticity of their very long, decades-long friendship was that they may have attacked each other's ideas, but they didn't attack each other's person or character. And I think that that is very befitting of the Supreme Court, uh, even if we disagree on the big ideas. Okay, and Carrie, just to close this out, then uh, let's talk about a couple of the ideas, because as far as I can tell from uh, Judge Michelle Childs, uh, the issue for me is 
is again, she was front and center with the Obergefell basically ruling because she was one of the first uh, judges that where this was litigated in her court. And then Leandra Kruger it, aggressively against the Hosanna Tabor ruling, which I think shocked all the judges when she came up as arguing against religious liberty, uh, you know, in, in, in that particular thing. These are real issues that we should be concerned about, correct? Oh, absolutely. I think those are, and, and Judge Child also has a, has a concerning case uh, regarding witnesses for absentee ballots and, and, and invalidating that in the state of California. Uh, Judge Jackson has some has some concerning cases where she seems to have taken very political positions opposed to the Trump administration and reached out to decide decisions against his regulatory um, uh, actions that she didn't even have jurisdiction to do. And that was even liberal judges of the D.C. Circuit arguing that actually she didn't have authority to decide those cases. Um, I, I am concerned to make sure that that the Senate Judiciary Committee members, as we're we're um, vetting these nominees and as they have their hearings, that there is a serious delving into their approach to the law. What we've seen from Biden's nominees so far is they like to go up and say, oh, well, I'm I'm perfectly moderate and down the middle of the road. And of course, I recognize how to read the Constitution and what it says. But do you have examples in your judging before where you can show that you actually do apply those things? I think now this is more of an illustration than anything. I mean, we have the fact that we have a majority justice in the court who are originalists right now. And the fact that every judge even the, the Democrat nominees have to go up before the court and, and at least verbally say they uh, uh, understand originalism is a testament to where we've come, because I think right. everyone recognizes that's that is the principled way to approach the Constitution. So we have to at least give lip service to that. What we need to do is ensure that there's a way to show that the people really have applied that in their judicial lives so far. Again, it's a concern with judges, you know, like Judge Kruger or Justice California Supreme Court Justice Kruger, who basically disavowed First Amendment protections to that Lutheran school in the Hosanna Tabor case. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a concern in those cases. It's a concern for me for Judge Jackson, who at her confirmation process to the D.C. Circuit claimed she didn't really have an approach to interpreting the Constitution. So I would have been embarrassed to say that as a 3L in law school. And here she is coming to the second highest court in the land and still doesn't really have a isn't able to articulate a clear approach to the Constitution. Either right. she's being uh, correct and candid in saying that, and that's concerning, or she's simply trying to not disclose what her real interpretive philosophy is. And I fear that any nominee that this president is going to select is going to be someone who, much like many of his other policies, will be presented as moderate, but at the end of the day, um, is actually going to be embracing some of the most extreme liberal policies. We know that's the direction his administration is pushed. We know that's the direction they're being pushed by the dark money groups on the left that have spent hundreds of millions of dollars to get him elected and other Democrats elected this past season. And so that's where the pressure is. So I, I think we need to be very careful to vet these justices fully. And, you know, the reality is there's only uh, the Senate is a 50 50 vote right now. So if every Democrat nominee you know, green lights, these judges, uh, they, whoever the president picks would be confirmed in That's that right. case. But we can't waste the opportunity to talk about this, to make sure the American people realize what is happening and to make sure that those um, senators on both parties who who are green lighting a nominee that doesn't have a sound judicial philosophy are held accountable. 
You know, that's an excellent, and I'll, let's just leave with that thought because in, in every interview that all, most people have gone through interview process and people will say, they're not asked just, what do you think about this or that? They're asked to demonstrate how they have done this in the past. Show us how you've solved this issue or show us how you, what principles have you brought to bear on this? And one of the things I, I talked to people about is when Prop 8 was overturned in California and it was 75% African-Americans and 75% Hispanics voted for it, it was a judicial uh, uh, usurpation of, individ- of, of the individual's vote. And I said, nothing like that happened in Jim Crow to that degree. And yet nobody made a big deal about that because it was kind of the, the, the liberal way of doing things. And the Ninth Circuit Court just did it uh, capriciously. And that's really our issue. Our issue is they, they didn't have the right to do that. They did not have the right to vacate the votes of blacks and Hispanics who happen to believe that marriage was between a man and a woman. And I think that's what you're talking about is let's, let's talk about their rulings. Let's see how they have applied these things in the past. So thank you both, you know, for being uh, with us today, because this is about people's individual freedoms. It's about making sure that the judiciary doesn't align with the executive branch or the legislative branch, but that they maintain uh, their uniqueness so that our individual liberties can actually be protected. Well, thank you again. Thanks, Carrie, for being with us today. It's a pleasure to have gotten to know you a little bit more. And thanks for your expertise on this. And thank you, Tim. Thanks for tuning in today. To get to know our LCRL DC work better, check out our website at lcrlfreedom.org. Contained there are resources to empower your public square dynamic discipleship. Or check out our weekly Word from the Center opinion piece every Friday at facebook.com forward slash lcrlfreedom. Till next time, God bless you always. I'm Gregory Seltz. Have a great week.